The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing, a new podcast from Thomson Reuters with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I'll be talking with the most interesting people in and around the legal profession. Sometimes serious, sometimes irreverent, but hopefully informative, insightful, and entertaining conversation for you to pass your commute, your lunch hour, or if you're looking for some procrastination. In this episode, I'm joined by Dame Fiona Wolfe. If you don't know her, she was the second female Lord Mayor of London and the second female President of the Law Society, but no silver medals for Fiona. As one of the first female partners in the city, she now practices as an eminent energy lawyer for CMS and continues her insightful work with the Power of Diversity programme set up during her tenure as Lord Mayor. Despite her notoriety and success at the top of the profession, she is warm, charming and was a real pleasure to record with. The Hearing well, Fiona, I think we first met more than 10 years ago uh, when I was uh, on the, at the time, I think, the Young Solicitors Group and you were either about to be or already president of the Law Society. We've yes, it way. feels about 20 years ago, Kevin, actually, <laughs> oh, well, thank but you. a lot has thank happened you. since um, then. Well, to see you, certainly. Um, so an incredible period in your life, um, uh, already this incredible career, um, and yet you were, say, taking up this role at the Law Society and the Junior Lawyers Division was just about to be formed and you really were a bit of a, um, a power broker uh, on the Law Society's <laughs> behalf when that was happening. Has... I feel I was a midwife, actually, <laughs> uh, just giving a little bit of adult su- supervision we probably needed it. to a, uh, a, a gentle negotiation between the Young Solicitors Group and the Trainee Solicitors Group and to bring a, a few meetings of minds, or a few meetings together. Uh, meetings as well. Um, as well as minds. What was your interest in, in bringing this about? Because I know you were integral to that. I think there were, there were two things. One was to bring together those who were aspiring to be solicitors with those who were young solicitors mm. who could help, and they could help each other on the journey. Mm. Um, And there were lots of hopes and aspirations that we all had in common for the future of the profession. But I kept saying to both groups, it's your future, not mine, as I go in to be an office holder of the Law Society. And I need you to be the ginger group, Mm. to think the unthinkable, Mm. not just focus on your own current interests, but, but, but the future for all of us and the society that we serve. Mm. And 10 years on, still going strong. Uh, so good foundations, I would like to think. Absolutely. Um, uh, but but that's, that's your interest in, in junior lawyers generally. But take me back to the start of your career when you were an aspiring uh, solicitor. What, when I was a junior lawyer. <laughs> well, what was, well, absolutely. Well, what, what was, I presume something like that didn't exist at the time. And, and really, what was your interest in the law? What got you int- started out? Well, I have to admit with some embarrassment that I came from a medical background. My father was a a university lecturer, a virologist at Edinburgh University. Both my brothers were medical students Um, and I didn't want to do that so I went to Keele University and I have to say, this is where the embarrassment comes (laughs) in, that I took up law as a result of running into the professor of law in the pub one evening. Oh, this this, this could have gone a very different way. Well, Keele University had a, 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 a first year, a foundation year, where you mm. did a bit of everything, and at the end of it, you could choose what you were going to do. Right. I was down to do chemistry and geology. Um, he said, how was I going to make up my mind what to do? Mm. Um, I said, I have no idea. I changed my mind like I changed my socks. <laughs> he said, 
come to my first year lectures. So I did, and the rest is history. Wow. And, and so uh, I won't ask you uh, when that was. Um, no, please don't. Uh, but but uh, to, get, to go from a uh, law student, at a time when, okay, we, we, were, we were a long way after the first female solicitor, but I imagine it still wasn't a particularly um, thriving environment for women uh, at the time, and particularly when you came into the city. Well, of course, when you're a student, you really don't know anything. Um, and I wasn't really thinking about a job mm. um, at that point. The world of work hadn't really impinged <laughs> on my consciousness. <laughs> I'm still waiting. But I kind of assumed that uh, there would be a, a place for me. Um, and indeed, um, I qualified with the firm that's now called uh, Taylor Wessing. Mm. Um, and they opened up my mind to all sorts of different ways in which solicitors can serve society, uh, mm. lots of different things to do. The thing I enjoyed most was the, the, the corporate work. Um, and I thought, I might try going to the city. Um, it was where my, my brothers were their medical students and right. it somehow seemed to be uh, where it was all happening. Maybe I was attracted to the pubs, <laughs> who knows. Uh, but anyway, um, I was offered um, jobs by several big firms and I chose Clifford Chance because they had the best view of St Paul's Cathedral from the 16th floor. It's, it's, it would be a good view right now uh, from Clifford Chance, I think. Over they were also rather nice to me, so I liked that. And, and for, but going into particularly into the corporate field, um, how how was that? Were you were you well, surrounded by role models? Um, the, there were actually only three women in the entire firm at that point. Um, oh. Rosbax, who was. Uh, just made, made up a partner in her mm. 40s, a mm. property lawyer, uh, Diana Benjamin, also in property, and me. Um, and there were a couple of trainees mm. as well. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I was the first in corporate commercial work mm. um, in, a, in that firm. And was that, did that feel like a lonely place to be at the time? Well, no, I think um, everybody treated me as one of the boys. Um, and we rubbed along. It was a place where everybody helped everybody else. Mm. Um, and it was tremendous variety. And it was it was a small f- firm by comparison to now, anyway, yes. in those days. And it was there that I became a member of the, uh, the Young Solicitors Group. Oh. Uh, Diana was, was involved. And she came into my room one day and said, have you got a spare bed? We've got some Dutch lawyers coming over. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, uh, that could have gone a number of different ways. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, how, uh, through the Young Sisters group, what did that, what did that give you that, um, that obviously you've benefited from and continue to contribute to? Well, I think it gave me two things. I, I mean, apart from a, a background a, a, or a backbone, I should say, of, of my social life, <laughs> it, um, it, it pointed me very much into the world of uh, regulation, mm. of how solicitors were regulated, mm. because that was what a, a, a lot of the things that we looked at. Um, and, and secondly, it made me think about the contribution that solicitors should be making um, and to, to law reform mm. um, and, and a whole wide area of different fields of law. 
uh, and you have you have no idea how useful that is as your career progresses because you may think you start off in property or corporate but actually you really have to know about pretty much everything as a lawyer yeah 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 I, I often get queries about uh, driving penalties and uh, parking <laughs> fines um, at cocktail parties <laughs> usually yes. yeah um, uh, but uh, again just let me go back for a moment um, the Justices Group gave you the social life, and, and obviously mm. there was a social life already, presumably at Clifford Chanson and at the other firms that you, you were working in uh, as you came through. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot at the moment around, uh, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more later, but about, certainly at the moment, gender pay gap reporting, uh, there's the Me Too campaign, there's lots around mm. sexual harassment, and uh, it, it, the, the area you're working in, but the profession that you were working in at the time was a very different place to what it is now. Uh, were there times when you felt um, in any way isolated, harassed, um, or, or like you would be potentially, in, in a very glorious sense, discriminated against in your career or, or set back in any way? I wouldn't say it was anything as dramatic as what you've just mentioned, but more that there were stereotypes mm. that I was having to fight against. I mean, I tell the story of when I was interviewed to go on the Council of the Law Society, and the opening question was, you're a family lawyer. <laughs> and I said, no. And they said, but you've been nominated by the Association of Women Solicitors. So I said, yes. So they said, oh, well, I mean, that was why we asked the AWS to nominate someone, because we were looking for a family lawyer. Um, what about social welfare? So I said, no, I don't do that either. And they said, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm doing a power station project in Northern Ireland. And their jaws dropped. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it was pretty quiet after that as well. <laughs> um, but, but, but that sort of, I don't know, we'd call it now sort of quite casual sexism in some ways, really built into the structure of how things were. Um, have, you seen, have you seen change over the last however many years? Um, and do you think that change has been uh, led by people within the AWS, by the Law Society, um, by firms themselves, or really has society changed around it and we've just kept up as lawyers? I think it's probably all of the above mm. but certainly the uh, the AWS and the Law Society did a lot of good work promoting diversity and inclusion mm. and for that matter I think we as women were also benefiting from the work that our LGBT friends were doing and they have made a lot of mm. progress if you think about mm. it. Um, I mean lots more to do, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and the Black Solicitors Network that yeah. I, I was very much involved with would have liked to have done a lot more with because I think we have still got mm. most to do with them and yeah. the disabled. Yeah. But having said that, I think there's also a kind of a change of mindset that uh, diversity and inclusion is not just about something that's fairness and equality of opportunity, but is now actually something about harnessing all the talent that mm. is available. Mm. And so there's a business reason to do this. Um, and and that, that people actually want to be, in the, in, be seen to be in the forefront of it, um, which is great. And I think that now, and, and I've been working on this recently, firms are particularly, and businesses too, are keen to change their workplace cultures mm. uh, to be um, more supportive mm. 
um, in terms of the development of that talent and not to exclude people. So we're seeing a lot of work done on inclusive leadership of, mm. of actually, so diversity inclusion is seen as part of a leadership package as much as anything. Mm. When I was Lord Mayor, we, we, we ran a program called The Power of Diversity. You see, being an electricity lawyer, everything's about power and transformation. <laughs> um, and we came across a, uh, an extraordinary statistic. 84% said, my senior leaders are doing all the right things on diversity inclusion. Mm. Actually, 87% had already said nothing is happening in the mm. city on this subject. But anyway, 84% said, we can't think of anything else that our leaders could be doing. But only 27% said, and I feel under some sort of pressure to do something about it. Yeah. And, 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 and again, everyone can talk the talk. And I think for a long time, there's been a lot of talk. Uh, yeah, but actually seeing right. the results from that. And, and we can talk about how, uh, I think next year, we've got 100 years of since the first female solicitor. Yes, 1919. 1919, right. there we go. Um, and yet, it's taken a long time over that course of 100 years. And very much was the latter end of it for real change to be affected in terms of entrance into the profession okay they've been building um, and, and actually now I think there are more women coming to the profession at a junior level than, than there ever have been and certainly more than men um, uh, but, but getting those people up through the ranks uh, and we can put it down to well it just takes time but has is time up Oh, I mean, time has been up for some time because, um, I mean, you know, way before I was president of the Law Society in 2006-07, the um, female entry was about over 60%. Wow. Um, uh, but the statistics on partners, female partners, mm. actually went back during my time in office from 25% to 22%. Mm. Um, and the, I think a lot of it has been around the, um, the intense... Uh, law firm culture focused on chargeable hours yep. um, and where everybody is focused on income generation rather than to my mind the more important um, issue of talent development I think we should be measuring people mm. on how well they supervise and, and, and develop talent mm. and when I was president of the Law Society we ran a survey across law accountancy and um, investment banking um, and the top metric that people look for to stay in a job or to be attracted into a job in the first place is actually the quality of their supervision and their ability to yep. develop their talent. Yep. And the next one is quality of work. Yeah, yeah. particularly again at that junior end where, where you're reliant really on both being fed work uh, exactly. but also being developed and, and encouraged and, and in some ways taught, um, uh, taught through it. Well, we don't see in the law. We we were never taught leadership or supervision, or on the job training. Mm. So I, in my youth, had two styles of leadership. One was the sink or swim style. So yep. Kevin, here's a piece of work to do. Yeah. I need it by Thursday afternoon, or the client needs it by Thursday yep. afternoon. It's already Wednesday. If you do it well, terrific. Mm. I'll give you the next job. If you don't, yep. the chances are I'll exclude you. Yes. Uh, this is where inclusion comes. Yep. Uh, and after a while, you are going to get fed up because you're never getting access to the top jobs. Yep. And you're going to leave. Um, now, then unconscious bias comes in. So I may say, okay, Kaylee's got children and she might like to go home 
at five o'clock mm. um, or her husband's a heavy hitting partner at PwC so he needs food on the table when he gets home yep. or something yep. but it's all unconscious of course so I've got a really juicy piece of work coming in but access to a top job for Kaylee mm. not sure about that because she probably wants to go home at night and it's going to be long hours so mm. I'll give it to Kevin mm. no, and, it, and it still happens um, and, and you see it all the time I'm afraid so and and, and, it's, and it comes back around to as well um, sort of the recruiting or suddenly promoting in your likeness mm. and have have you felt that um, I know the AWS and now the Women Lawyers Division have done a lot of work around this in, in terms of both opening doors but also keeping those doors open for people to follow through. Yes. Is that something that you've, you've seen happen but also is it something you've seen not work particularly well? Is there, is there I think we've got a lot that? of work to do on, on, on that front. I mean, there was a period yeah. when it was considered career suicide, really, to take a break. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you said you were going off to, to have a baby, you would be put into some sort of siding. Mm-hmm. And the siding never actually got you back on track, um, sad to say. And that was just a complete waste of talent. Yeah. The people I always admired, actually, were the the much maligned Crown, Crown Prosecution Service, who've got very little money to play with and really value the talent that they have and keep people engaged yeah. while they're on career breaks and help them to return and get back on track. And what do you think makes them stand out? What makes that different? Is it the public sector? Is it um, sort of a different ethos? Mm, well, I think it's a culture of valuing people apart from anything else. <laughs> <laughs> valuing difference. Yeah. But, but, but also... They're not purely down they're to cash te- either. They're, they're, they have... You know, techniques for Mm. um, sending people files, keeping them involved Mm. in training programs or in, uh, you know, webcasts or whatever it is. I'm not sure what they they do now, but but, um, but I was impressed at the time when I looked at it. uh, Yeah, the opportunities for agile working and and, and remote working are now much better than they've ever been before. Incredible. And and where's it going to go? So hopefully uh, the the corner has been turned and, and this time next year... Um, I want you to mention briefly uh, the story about the first female solicitor. Oh my goodness me, that was not one of the Law Society's proudest moments. So this was in uh, 1922-23 when uh, the first women qualified and the question was in that bunch who was going to be the first to be put on the roll and do you know what they did? They asked them to run a race up Chancery Lane. And the woman who could run fastest was the first, Carrie Morrison, to be put on the roll. Just incredible. I mean, it's disgraceful. It is, especially now. You'd be chancing your life with the way the taxis go up there. Um, <laughs> it's not a very wide pavement either. It's not great. Um, but it's just, it's just incredible. And, and, and it's not that long ago. Um, no. That's what we need to remember. No, it's not long ago. Um, but I want to, diversity clearly has been one of your passions. It's been something that's really you've, you've stuck with right the way through your ex- extensive and very broad-ranging career. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, you've already dropped, uh, dropped it in there. But Lord Mayor of London, the second woman, uh, Lord Mayor of London in 1100 plus years or something crazy. It's, it was, uh, was actually, it was 825 oh, years, since 1189. There you we remember go. I've got those 11 in there somewhere. Yeah, second um, in 11, yes, that's what, uh, since 1189. Now, first of all, 
how does that happen? Um, uh, it, it, uh, did you follow Dick Whittington, um, where, the, where the streets paved with gold? Um, how does it come about? Well, I have the solicitor's profession to thank for it, uh, because when I was president of the Law Society, I went to a dinner at the Mansion House, okay. and the um, incoming Lord Mayor, uh, Sir David Lewis, talked to me um, about... Um, the support the Law Society had given a Lord Mayor's overseas visit. And I'd been on many overseas mm. visits in my past wearing my Law Society hat uh, because of their wonderful door-opening power. Yeah. And I could meet people and press for market opening for foreign lawyers in mm. a way that I couldn't do on my own. Mm. Um, and so we talked. And the next morning, I, I really don't remember what I said, but you don't really do you after a dinner, <laughs> especially oh. with very very good wines that the solicitor's <laughs> company have. And he sent me an email saying that the ward of Candlewick was falling vacant. And if I thought I would like to become an alderman when I finished being president of the Law Society, then I should write a letter to the town clerk. Gosh. So is this a case of being tapped on the shoulder? Uh, or is this something Oh, else? I wish. I wish. No, because I had to fight a local election like any other. Wow. With quite a significant opponent in, the, in a small but perfectly formed ward mm. where everybody was very, very busy getting on with their business mm. um, and not terribly interested in electing, using their, their, <laughs> their voting rights. People don't vote that much in local familiar. elections yeah. where they live, yeah. let alone where they work. Um, so getting people's attention, it was, mo- it, was a, it was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Really? Was to fight a local election. Um, uh, there were only 243 votes uh, because half the, half the ward was a building site. So every vote counted. Yeah. We had a 33% vote and I think I won by 55 votes to Gosh. 19 Wow, okay. Which well, I thought was something of a landslide. Quite, yes, actually, given those numbers, it probably is. Um, and, and what did that involve? Um, you're, you're an elected official, I guess. Um, you are. You're an elected local councillor. Um, and many cities have both aldermen and what we call them common councilmen, mm, but, mm. But, but ordinary councillors. Mm. And it's from the court of aldermen that you progress to be Lord Mayor. Other cities have Lord Mayors as well. Westminster for it being one. Yeah, and, and well, just briefly, because uh, we don't have that much time, I'm afraid. But briefly, what was the year like? Um, you, know, you obviously set yourself some uh, some targets to achieve. Um, I know when you were the Law Society, you set yourself some extreme targets uh, <laughs> to get around to speak to a lot of people and press a lot of flesh. Um, but but what, what what was your I suppose what were your main achievements and 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 memories of, of that time? Well, it was all in the preparation and the planning. Um, And I could see that if you didn't decide what you were going to focus on, other people would fill up your diary with random (laughs) stuff because there was was always uh, people um, who who would welcome a a Lord Mayor's visit. Um, And you are on the road for about 100 days um, as a given ministerial status supported by the FCO and UKTI to go and promote bilateral trade and investment around the world but with a particular focus on financial and professional services and the City of London Uh, but you will if spot an opportunity you will do your best uh, to uh, to promote it yeah Um, so it was 
that left a, um, uh, a very busy schedule to pack in other things. So we prepared, my husband and I, four programmes. I think I was, I sort of like to think I was the first to put down a, a mayoral prospectus, if you like, with these programmes. Mm. One around my, my day job, which, which was, it was in the run-up to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And okay. the electricity industry was mm. on a roll with decarbonisation, mm. but affordability and security of supply, the trilemma as we called it. But it was cast around looking forwards and sustainability, sustainable investment. And so it was called Tomorrow's City, what would make us successful in the future as we had been in the past. Mm. Um, one was the power of diversity, very obviously. Yep. And lots of people were very, very supportive of my running with uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, uh, because it would have been a missed opportunity if I hadn't, frankly. I should have yeah. been shot not to do it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Nicholas's programme was on charity leadership. Um, there wasn't much out there for charity trustees, mm. Mm. which he did with the CAS Business School. Yeah. Um, and then the, the fourth one was to create a new paradigm and a new platform for the Lord Mayor's Charitable Appeal, which would be a force for good not just fundraising, but in kind, and that yeah. continues to run with the Power of Diversity programme. Well, let's, let's talk about the Power of Diversity programme for a moment. You've already mentioned some of the statistics that, that came from it, which are, mm. uh, which are absolutely fascinating. And I would encourage anyone to have a good look at it as well, whatever you're working in. Um, uh, but but there, is some, there are some clear lessons in there. Uh, but tell me a little bit about what it really it set out to achieve. Um, because again, we've said before, there's a lot of talk around these things. Mm. Getting those targets met, getting something achieved, making it effective is a very different thing. And, and outside of your control in many ways, mm-hmm. and certainly now uh, when you're back to the desk job and uh, that you've been training for for a long time and, and now working in. But how can you um, sort of affect that change? Well, I think what... Uh, encouraged me to set it up was uh, the fact that, uh, as I said, lots of, of people were very supportive of the idea of a diversity inclusion programme. And a lot of the captains of industry uh, said to me, we are actually quite frustrated at the lack of progress. We feel we have been working on this agenda for a long time. Mm. Uh, we have been messaging about it. Well, we've been supporting all sorts of activities in our organizations mm. but we are just not getting there and actually at the moment when uh, I took office uh, we were on a roll with women on boards yes uh, and I felt I didn't really need to push that along but actually the number of women in executive positions senior executive positions was only 7.2 percent yeah um, and that's not yet up to 20 percent. So it was this frustration, what is going on? The senior leaders were engaged and yet they were frustrated at the lack of progress. And some of them were openly saying, actually, we're just not very good at it. So we'd like to know what everybody else is doing. Mm. So we felt it was a, a, a collaboration. And it was a real light bulb moment when Eileen Taylor at Deutsche Bank said, we're collaborating, we need to collaborate. Mm. We're not competing with each other on yep. this. So. 34 organizations got together and after six months or so of of talking and comparing notes we decided that actually we really needed to to focus on the workplace cultures and practices Mm. 
um, and particularly on what was happening at mid-level, the, the keepers of the talent pipeline. Yeah. Because the, yes. the pipeline was, was leaking and people were not being pushed up it. Yeah. Um, the leaders might like to pull people up, but they needed the push as well. So that was really what uh, what motivated it. And, and do you still think that that's the case? It, do, we, talk, we hear a lot about change coming from, it has to come from the boardroom. Uh, it has to come down. Do you believe that change can be pushed up in some ways? It's not just about being pulled up all the time. It can be pushed. It can be forced. It's Everybody has a role to play in this. I think the, the juniors and the new entrants mm. have a role to play in making their presence felt, um, their expectations mm. of a, quite simply, a, a, a society that isn't just one about fairness, but... but but one about opportunity, mm. and they want to be included in in, in that opportunity. Um, and so, if they're not helpful, and get run around saying, "What can we do to help on this?" Because that's the way to get people's attention. Yep. Um, they have only themselves to blame if they get ignored. But it's the people at the mid level. The mid level can be actually probably a solicitor who's two or three years out, who's supervising a trainee and maybe one yep. other, yep. who is a leader who could probably do with some leadership training about how to include them. Um, we could all do with it because, you know, I mentioned my my style of leadership was a sink or swim one, but the alt- alternative one is a kind of micromanaged, um, oh, this mm. is all very interesting and gosh, there's a big meeting with clients coming up, so maybe I should actually take this back from you um, and do it myself. So I'm actually denying an opportunity to learn and try. Um, and so if we could get not just leadership training but a, a mindset going that actually the talent that is working with you, the talent that's supporting you, that's doing the work for you is as important as a client and bringing in a new client because mm. you're only as good as the talent that you're working with. Yep. Um, and if you can help to develop those talents in a way that increases versatility and flexibility, that means that, you know, in my terms, you are not just doing connection agreements for the national grid, you can do gas as well. Um, you will be more productive, and that productivity will drop to the bottom line, which is easily measured. Because I'm afraid people are only measured on their income generation, or in our case, the chargeable hours. Well, you, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And, and I think until firms, whether it's in the city, whether it's outside the solicitor's mm-hmm. profession, until they recognize that there can be an impact on that bottom line, a positive impact, I should mm-hmm. say, um, uh, it's still something which seems underinvested. And particularly, and as I've said for a long time, that you can have very good solicitors but they don't automatically make good managers. No. <laughs> and it comes without training, and it comes without really uh, any, often, and I shouldn't say this is a generalisation, but often it comes without any training or any support structure in place. Um, and any, this, is a, this is a big problem, and it's affecting, like say, that bottleneck, that pipeline mm. um, at that mid-level. And I think you're right. And, and if that can change, um, and there's a willingness for it to change, uh, which probably does come from the top down. Um, then, then I think. And it's, think how it's empowering true. it is for the for the for the mid level managers as well, yeah. but as because, you know, we're asking a lot of them. We're asking them to be the worker bees, mm. to do the work, 
We're also going to pull in the business. We're measuring them on that. Uh, but we're also asking them, although they, we're not measuring them on, on, on their, their ability to, to manage uh, or supervise some, some, some other people. Mm. Um, but so we are all in this together. There is mm. nobody in a firm or a business that is not involved in furthering the diversity and inclusion agenda in all its forms. And you can do lots of activities, but unless they are part of a concerted effort to make everybody feel included, to feel that everybody can develop their talents, that everybody has mm. you know, access to the top jobs. Mm. Um, and a lot of firms are actually working on how work is allocated and those top jobs are allocated yeah. now and they have programs on that, Yes, which is really good. So for you, What's next? I understand that you've already retired twice. Yes. Um, uh, is, there a, is there a third time the charm? Um, what, what's coming up for you? Well, uh, now my husband has just retired um, and there is a certain pressure on me. <laughs> Although I have to say that just right now, the moment in the electricity industry is so delicious mm. because having decided that we do have to decarbonize the industry, but we also have to do it in a way that's affordable mm. and that keeps the lights on. It's causing us to rethink a lot of things. And we're at a moment in the industry which is a bit like that wonderful moment when somebody looked at a suitcase and said, why are we carrying it by a handle <laughs> on the long side when we could put wheels on the short side? Um, and I'm... I'm I'm in, involved in in a couple of jobs that are just part of that that are the heart of that and it's just too delicious a moment to go and squander the children's inheritance. So it's not a case of your uh, your uh, not being allowed to retire, but actually uh, <laughs> you, you're very much keen to carry on for the time being. And and um, uh, we we've, we talked briefly earlier um, uh, just before we started recording about your life motto. Uh, which I think is worth sharing with everybody because I think it's something that we should all be living by. Well, my life's motto usually makes people laugh. It's get lucky and say yes. The serious message behind it is that you can, by thinking ahead for yourself um, and with and for others, actually create your own luck. You can think about it, be in the right place at the right time. And I'm a huge fan of development plans, which at one point the, the Law Society was encouraging us to do, actually, mm. as lawyers. Um, and the, the message behind saying yes is actually saying yes does involve you getting out of your comfort zone on many occasions. But there is nothing more delicious than feeling that you have, by rising to a challenge, learnt something mm. and you are now in a different place than you were before you said yes. So get lucky and say yes. Is this the name of your autobiography or, uh, <laughs> or self-help book? I'm not sure, but uh, that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, it's been delightful as ever. It's been lovely to see you again after all this time. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll speak soon. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.